Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Facebook Live here on the Tennessee Holler. I am Holler co-founder Justin Canoe. Happy New Year. It's been a little while since we've done one of these things, partly because it was the holidays, partly because I just had a baby. He's now six weeks old and he's doing great. We wanted to start doing more of these Facebook Lives here on The Holler. We're at the TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook, tnholler.com. We've been growing fast. Thank you for everybody who's been supportive. It all really helps. We're user supported, so subscribe to us at tnholler.com. And also, if you haven't yet, your small dollar monthly donations are really what keep us going here to hold our elected officials accountable, which is what we've been trying to do since we launched. And we have a really cool guest today. I'm going to bring him in now. Thank you, Tammy. Tammy Anderson says, congratulations. I appreciate that. It's been great. He sleeps during the day and he's up all night. So the bags under my eyes, that's where that comes from. Right now, a special guest, Daniel Benayim. Dan, how are Dan or Dan, are you going by Dan or Daniel these days? I actually don't even know that. Either one's fine for you, Justin. It's great to talk to you, man. You too, bud. So let me just set this up. First of all, everybody needs to know, Dan and I have known each other since, man, what, maybe four years old? Yeah, something like that. Three, four, four five. Old, something like that, right? So. We go really far back. We went to, I guess, what do you call it, pre-K or kindergarten or elementary school, all of that together. When I lived in New York, we both went to a school called Dalton. And uh, then I ended up moving to California. And I didn't really talk to Dan for a while, kind of until I ran for Congress in 2018. And I was like, who do I know that knows stuff? And one of the first people that I thought of was my pal Dan who uh, has done some amazing things in his life. I'm going to just give it briefly because I don't want you to have to stroke yourself. Um, so he was a Middle East foreign policy advisor for the White House, speechwriter for the White House, the Senate, and the State Department. And uh, he, you've just done some amazing stuff, man. I'm proud of you. Well, thanks. And I'm proud of you. You just had a kid. Oh, hey, thanks. Yeah, that's more important. Yes, thank you. You started this website. That's huge. Yes, and so I appreciate you coming and and, uh, joining us here. You've been doing a lot on MSNBC, and it's really cool to see you on Chris Hayes doing your thing. And you're always knowledgeable. And when I was running, I would ask you when I had questions, and you were always really generous with your time and and your texts. So I appreciate that. Can you just tell us real quick, like give us, how do you pitch yourself? What do you say your background is? Well, I'd say I'm a Middle East nerd and speechwriter. Uh, that's kind of what I do. I love to travel around the Middle East, talk to people, hear about what's going on. I was fortunate to have a chance uh, in saner times to do some of that work at the White House and the State Department and on Capitol Hill uh, for Joe Biden, for Hillary Clinton, for for a, a great diplomat named Bill Burns, who's like the quintessential professional diplomat. Uh, got to do some of that work and see some amazing folks. And then uh, for the last maybe four or five years, um, I've just been out trying to talk to the American people about foreign policy. And, you know, when you work at a place like the White House, you get a ton of briefings, you get a ton of material. But what you're really missing is connectivity in t- two directions. First, you can't actually talk to like real Americans very often. You're, you're working 18 hours a day. Um, at one point, I had a vitamin D deficiency from working indoors for too many hours trying to solve all these crises. But on the other hand, you can't really go talk to people in the Middle East because you're too busy uh, with your day job. It's like looking out of the periscope of a submarine, kind of out at the world. Uh, So ever since, I've just been trying to catch up, write, 
educate people. I teach at New York University as well. Uh, I do some commentary. And uh, yeah, that's me. So let me ask you this. From the seat that you sit in, what has it been like to watch what has happened to the State Department and the processes that you know better than most? How has it changed since you've left? Well, you know, yeah, it's been pretty painful, I got to say. I mean, I came into the State Department as a political appointee. Uh, basically, you have all kinds of different cats and dogs at state. You have the political appointees, the professional diplomats, the civil servants, and ideally they all work together. And there's always a little tension, but it's kind of productive. But these guys came in and treated the State Department almost like an enemy, what they call the deep state, you know. And what it really is is a bunch of like earnest, nerdy people trying very hard to make good things happen for the country who know way too much about what they're doing and think it's incredibly important. There's a guy at the State Department who's a desk officer for Papua New Guinea, and he tries to help America and Papua New Guinea every day. It's a really amazing, weird, interesting place, the State Department. And there's just a lot of knowledge there and a lot of expertise. And it's just been run absolute roughshod. The senior ranks of diplomats have been completely shredded. But it's not just that. It's the middle of the thing. You know, each of these diplomats who come in, they spend 20, 30 years. They get educated. They learn languages. They learn nuclear nonproliferation. They can speak to Galag and like talk to Filipino people and convince them, you know, of the important things for the, that relationship or Japanese or Chinese or Arabic. And when you lose somebody like that who's been doing that for 15, 20 years, it's a multi-million dollar investment. And Trump and, and uh, Tillerson and to some extent Pompeo, although on this point he's a little better, have just been running roughshod and shredding the place and like failing to do the basics to staff it with enough people and treating it in a lot of cases like a sort of rival or enemy. It's a little different now because Pompeo is kind of a very powerful guy in the Trump administration. He's got the president's ear. But it's not clear to me that he listens to his own building all the time. So I think morale there is a little better now because Pompeo is a different animal than Tillerson. But it's not good. And whoever comes in next, whatever Democrat um, gets a chance to, uh, to attempt this reconstruction project that's ahead, is going to have to look long and hard at how to rebuild that place because it's an American treasure. And it's part of how we solve problems without having wars is using our diplomats. Do you think that that was just out of neglect or inexperience or does something more nefarious feel like it's a play where it's by design to gut our State Department and weaken America? You know, I think I, nefarious is probably a strong word, but look, what happened was he came to office saying things and doing things that ran contrary to the values that were held by both parties. When you come and you say, as a candidate, I'm going to ban a whole religion from entering America, like he did with that Muslim ban that he was talking about when he ran. Diplomats who have served America around the world and interacted with people from other religions and other races and other societies, they look at it and, and say... Uh, you know, that's not me. That's not my values. And I need to take a stand, whether not because I'm a Democrat or like a deep state operative, but because like this isn't what I signed up for. So he and his kind of ideology really does challenge the system. When he got there and said, we're going to ban all these people from all these Muslim countries, a lot of people at the State Department use this sort of formal dissent channel that's designed to say, like, look, I disagree with this policy. They used it during the Obama administration when I was there to say, we think America should have a different policy on Syria. But the very first week, like a thousand diplomats signed on and were like, don't do a Muslim ban. And so that got us off on a pretty bad foot. And I think he looked at these guys and he thought to himself, 
you guys don't have an American America first ideology. You're not ready to implement all my plans. Now, I know the State Department guys, they're not political. They would implement a lot of what he wants, even if they disagree with it. They do it all the time. A lot of these guys worked for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. They worked for Bush and Obama. And they could work for Trump, too, uh, if he wants, because they're professionals, first and foremost. They're about America. They're ironically not about America first, but just about America. You know, so they, they would do it. But I think he came to see them as an enemy or a rival to cut out. And you see things like this impeachment, where if he's going to run around and do dirty deals with Ukraine, where he holds up the military assistance that Congress gave to Ukraine to protect themselves um, in, in ways that are a flagrant abuse of power, and just like on their face, not cool, and in my mind, impeachable, then people at the State Department, when they're asked to testify, are going to say, yeah, I'll tell you what I saw. It was wrong. It was a dirty deal. And that's bad. So that's why he doesn't trust them. And in some cases, he's right that if he tries to break the law and abuse power, they'll call him out and they'll stand in the way in a way that the folks at the White House won't. Well, so this guy operates on, you know, you're either with me or against me. He's yeah. a mobster. He demands loyalty to himself before the country. And he has gotten it from a lot of people. Yep. So, you know, the way this country was designed was to counter someone like that checks and balances, you know, distribution of power, equal branches of government. These are all things that he has never had to deal with in his business life. And he has running roughshod over now. It's, it's, you know, it, it's so hard to watch people who claim to be constitutionalists, strict constitutionalists is what we hear all the time here in Tennessee, enable this guy, you know? So when you, when you see him doing this, does it feel like, Congress, it, does it like what it makes me realize is all the things that we were taught, Dan, about you know, the the nature of our government, we're so fragile and we're sort of almost adorably naive, you know. And and do we need to now enshrine these things in the law, or is it just you know we're going to get through this guy and we'll be okay? You know, boy, I sure hope we're going to be okay. Uh, but you're absolutely right that the system that we had, the system when you go back to the founders and you go back and you look at quotes from you know, Andrew Hamilton and James Madison about their worries that one day a demagogue would come to hold this powerful office, uh, it, it reads like just through the centuries like they're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think there is really a crisis of democracy because he doesn't respect these checks and balances. And in a lot of cases, they're customary rather than legal. And I do think we're going to need major reforms. Now, we've done this kind of thing before. After Watergate in the late 1970s, you had the Church Commission run by Frank Church in Idaho, a senator. And, and they basically looked around and they said, like, what are the kinds of things that we've got to stop doing? You know, secret CIA assassinations and intelligence machinations and, uh, you know, intelligence agencies working uh, on domestic issues against political rivals and all kinds of chicanery that Nixon did. And some of which, like Kennedy and Johnson did, you know, that, that weren't only a partisan issue. And they looked at this thing and they said, we've got to actually do some fundamental rethinking about certain parts of that. And in that same era, they, uh, they worked on a piece of legislation that's pretty vitally important, like this week, which is the War Powers Act, which is Congress asserting its role in the Constitution as the body that decides when and how and whether America goes to war, right? So if you look at that stuff from the 70s, it's not the first time in, in, I mean, it's the first time in our living memory because we were born in 79, 80, but like people a little older than us have lived through this. 
Uh, and I think we need to do something like that again and just basically reverse engineer all the abuses that we're seeing here right now and, and figure out how to, how to legislate them and create new norms. Like when a foreign power interferes and tries to subvert American democracy and calls up somebody, that person should probably be required to report that to the FBI. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea for anybody who wants to run for any office bigger than dog catcher to have to disclose their tax returns for for 10 years. Right. You know, and these are so, the things that we need to make laws. And, you know, right. You're welcome for Marsha Blackburn, who has blocked three of those election security bills that we're talking about that would have required people to do just that. Uh, she is what actually activated me in into politics in the first mm -hmm. place. I ran for the seat that she left behind. I thought I was running against her. Uh, and that was an enjoyable three months. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, those two things right there would be a good start as far as enshrining this in the law. I want to ask oh, you yeah, about you know, just today. Yeah. Let me just say one thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm a foreign policy nerd, so I'm, I'm a little over my skis in terms of the domestic stuff. But look, just today, Arizona, I think, passed, uh, There's, I think it was Arizona, Secretary of State passed uh, auto, automatic voter registration. So you get a driver's license, you're registered to vote. Now, I can't for the life of me understand why 50 states and the District of Columbia don't have that already. Uh, why are we making it harder to vote? And why are we making it so that with gerrymandering, so that uh, representatives choose their voters instead of voters choosing their representatives? That's just, if you're for that, it's hard for me to look you in the eye, man. I mean, right, right. And, 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 but you do know why. I mean, that's, that's how I do they're, know why. they're holding on to power. That's how, you know, it's minority rule. It's, it's, you know, Republicans are trying to keep the most power in the hands of the fewest people, and they do it through turning voter suppression and gerrymandering and all that into an art form. We see it here in Tennessee where, you know, we're 50th in voter turnout and they just passed a law to make it uh, possible to be criminalized for voter registration. If you turn in a, a, a group of forms that have over 100 that are poorly filled out, you could get fined thousand dollars. Yeah, and, that's just crazy. That, right. It's being challenged just, in the courts, but this is what they're this is how they're trying to maintain power. Well, I do think that there's a contest for power here domestically that's pretty essential. Like what happened with Nixon is. Nixon, the whole country basically looked at that and said, wow, that was messed up. That was wrong. And, and Democrats, Republicans said, wow, this isn't my America. I don't want this. And it took a few years when it came to the, the Church Commission, which was in the late 70s. You know, we're going to need some daylight on all the things that Trump is doing, but we're also going to need some political power to uh, make all these things happen, to get secretaries of state around the country elected. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, you can't do this with ideas alone. You need power. You need power and you need people to be activated and, and voting is great, but getting involved is even better. So I'm always encouraging people to get out there and get involved, find a cause, find a group. And, and, you know, there's no substitute for the legwork and, and knocking on doors and, and just getting out there and talking to your neighbors. Uh, I see that we have about 30 people on here with us. I appreciate you guys being there. And, you know, obviously most people watch after the fact, but if you have any questions and you're watching live, feel free to ask us. I see that Merrill Frazier has said, unfortunately, the people that need to hear this most will write it off as fake news or deep state. You're right about that, Merrill. And he also says the crux of the matter is that strict constitutionalist really means just the parts that I like, which is usually strictly referring to the Second Amendment and nothing else. And that's completely true. We've seen that over and over again here in Tennessee. So I, I agree with both of those things from Merrill. Let's talk about the Middle East now, Dan. So what was going on when you were there? What was going on when I was when I was in office? You mean, or when yeah. I was when you were when you were at the White House writing speeches and yeah. covering things? What? Where did you leave it? I guess is kind of what I'm what I'm looking at here. Yeah. Well, 
Exactly. I mean, the Middle East has been a messy, chaotic region for a long time. When I when I arrived, uh, it was at a moment when there were revolutions in all kinds of Middle Eastern states trying to set up democracies, most of which tragically failed. But there were also two big problems that we were dealing with together. One was the rise of ISIS, which was a big terrorist army, essentially, that got recruits from all over the world, swept across Iraq and Syria and pulled in thousands of people from Europe had attacks across America and Fort Hood, Texas, uh, and, and Orlando, Florida. And that, that was kind of raging. And we basically pulled together about 70 countries and figured out a way uh, at about one two hundredth of the cost of the 2003 Iraq war for a few billion bucks, which is a lot, but a heck of a lot less than a trillion, which was or more on the Iraq war, to get Iraqis out front and, and ultimately Syrians out front to fight these groups. Um, that strategy was one of the few things that President Trump basically continued. But then ever since he's been trying to get out, which in some ways is an admirable instinct, but also depending on how you do it, you may leave behind ISIS and you may have to go back. And they may be, we may not be interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East is interested in us. Right. So talk about that first, because that, that I think is a really important point, right? So, you know, talking to people who don't follow this stuff day to day, they would just say, we shouldn't be there. Let's get out. Why are we there in the first place? What is the, what are the reasons for not just today getting everybody out of there, period, and, and letting it, whatever happens, happens? You know, it's such a great point. And foreign policy people sitting in Washington, it can be easy to say, like, like a, you know, a lab coat and a white coat around a sports car or something. We can fix this and tweak that. And the first question is, like, why are we there in the first place? You're absolutely right. That's where you start. And the old answer used to be we're there because oil fuels the economy. That's not so true now. Under Obama and Trump, we've been basically ratcheting up domestic oil production from about 5 million barrels a day to about 12, uh, which is massive and a problem, but good for our dependence on the Middle East. But there are still reasons for America to be there. We're the most powerful country in the world, and we set up an order in the Middle East that lets that oil go to countries, to other countries, who buy all our stuff. And if they don't get Middle Eastern oil, we're going to have a global recession. So we're, we may be oil energy independent, but we're not energy insulated from the global economy. So that's still one thing. But the thing is, terrorism... So, so just, just real quick, so like people would hear that and they would go, that sounds like, you know, an empire talking. Yeah, yeah. And I think our challenge as Americans is that we have stakes that push us overseas in ways where we can't just sit inside our shores and wait for the world to happen to us, like in some ways, like we did in the run up to 9-11. And we can't, on the other hand, go around occupying countries and, and doing kind of gunboat colonial diplomacy uh, like happened, uh, you know, like, like the 2003 Iraq war. That's just a dumb thing to do. It's dangerous. We don't know how to do it. It empowers our enemies. So we're stuck in this kind of messy middle between wars, which are a super dumb idea and dangerous and tragic and have turned out to be very counterproductive for America, especially in the last 20 years, and, and real isolation where we can't shape what's going on. And in that middle space is what we're trying to figure out how to do. Uh, we developed something they called by, with, and through. And what it means is that we the, the campaign against ISIS was going to be fought by the Iraqis, it was going to be fought with the Iraqis, and it was going to be cut, fought through the Iraqis. And that's why you can count the Americans who have died in that campaign over several years on, on two hands. Uh, that's, a, that's too many. But it's, it's, they've saved many, many more lives inside America by fighting ISIS uh, and preventing this terrorist caliphate from taking root 
and continuing to inspire Americans to go out and kill or to ravage the Middle East. Now, that may feel very far from Tennessee, but when you think about uh, 9-11 in our hometown, and I will never forget smelling smoke from those buildings uh, in the place where I lived in those days after that and meeting the you know crying firemen, uh, when you think about what domestic terrorism can do, it's a scary thing. And the truth is we don't know how to handle it. And so it pays when you see terrorist groups really taking shape overseas to figure out which ones matter to us enough that we can work not by ourselves, but with local partners doing the fighting to stop them. That's what we're trying to do. Have, you been, risky, to, yeah. have you been to Iraq? Three times in the last couple of years. Not as much, I'm sure, as some of your listeners who spent a lot of hard, painful years there. But I've been there. I've talked a bunch with different Iraqis. I've been in northern Iraq. I've been in southern Iraq. Uh, I spent a bunch of time in Baghdad. It's a complicated, confusing place and very frustrating for America sometimes. But there's a government there in Iraq and in the Kurds that, that want to work with us. They want to be. They have their own friendships with Iran and other countries that are our enemies or adversaries. But you know, they they want to work with us to make sure ISIS doesn't come back to threaten either of us. And that's still a worthwhile thing. And that's why when President Trump is kind of trash talking them about you know destroying cultural monuments and they're not ready to do their own thing and bombing people on their own soil from their own country, you know, without their own knowledge. Uh, it takes that partnership and stretches it all the way to the breaking point, which is where we are now. And I get the sense that when he says things like that and when he proposes things like the Muslim ban, he is actually helping ISIS. He is helping push people towards the hard line against America that believe that we're the great Satan. He's helping to eradicate the gray zone where Muslims and the rest of the world live at peace. Do you think Donald Trump has been a great recruiting tool for anti-American sentiment? I think he's certainly given people who have very negative views about America a lot of ammunition, right? I mean, you know, I he, I don't know. People recruit for ISIS for a lot of complicated reasons from a lot of places. But he's basically people who want to see America as a threat or as an enemy to Islam or as a foreign invader or as disrespectful or arrogant or, or just as like a bull in a china shop you know, like when it comes to like other third, you know, other countries, he's made us seem like the aggressor and he's made us seem like not, not like a country that has ideals in the world, but like a kind of brute. And, and I understand why that has some tactical advantages to seeming tough out in the world, but I think it ignores the ways that our idealism helps us. I mean, like in the, in, you go through history, powerful countries, other countries tend to bandwagon together to counteract powerful countries. Since World War II, that hasn't really happened to America. Russia happened with Russia, but like other powerful countries didn't join Russia to band together out of fear of America because we made it clear that like we weren't trying to conquer everyone and dominate the world and exploit everyone and ring every last dollar and do a kind of defense protection racket uh, out of these partnerships. We said, you can do well, we can do well. You know, we need your help on some things, but we can do well and you can do well. And Trump is saying something pretty different, which is like, if you're winning, we're losing. And other countries are going to look at that and say, gosh, we really can't count on that. We have to hedge against it and bandwagon against it and come together to counteract this problem called America. Oh, and I think that's I think you've hit it right there. And, and it's not just about the Middle East. That's true with all of our allies. You know, I, I'm a big believer that like the, the, the costs and the damage that this guy has done to us, we won't even really know about ever. It's just yeah. going to be the, the rest of the world preparing 
for a world without us, making deals without us. It's just an opportunity cost that you know you're never going to be able to really measure. No, that's exactly right. And and that word opportunity cost is like that's the right idea because when you think about what's happened in Iran, like that was the other big thing we were working on. When we when we uh, during the time when Obama was in charge, around the time when I arrived there in 2013, Iran was about one month away from being able to prepare enough nuclear material at a high enough enrichment level to break out and build a nuclear bomb. They call that the breakout clock. It was set to a month. Now, there are other technical parts of this. you got to build a missile. you got to build a weapon. Uh, There were no inspectors watching their stuff, and they had facilities built underground into a mountain uh, in the holiest city in Shiite Islam, a place called Gom, that were just churning away, right? That's where it was. And through this thing called the Iran nuclear deal that that Obama and Russia and China and France and the UK and Germany um, and China, you know signed together with Iran, uh, we removed 97% of their enriched uranium. We put the strictest inspection uh, rich routines that have been in place and that Iran was honoring and allowing people to inspect all over the country uh, for, for 10, 15 years. It was like a kind of gold standard nuclear agreement in a lot of ways. Um, it had its problems and it had its expiration dates, which was part of why Iran agreed to it. But that that was where we left things. And and when we left in 2016, at the end of 2016, Iran was a bad actor in the Middle East. They were doing bad, bad stuff. They were doing bad stuff in Syria, bad stuff in Yemen, bad stuff in Iraq. What they weren't doing was shooting at Americans. Uh, they weren't they weren't doing the kinds of things we've seen now, firing rockets at oil refineries in Saudi Arabia, shooting at American bases causing demonstrations, trying to get us thrown out of the country, killing Americans. That's all new. Like, it's not that they liked us. They hated us. And we hated them in a lot of ways. But we were trying to see if it was possible, despite no love lost, to just have a relationship where the Middle East was a little calmer and it wasn't on a hair trigger. We could bring some of our forces home over time or bring them to other regions to look at China and Russia. We were both kind of acting up and getting out of hand. And, uh, and we said, sure, we could we could confront you and we'd probably win on the battlefield, but it's not worth it because what we need, we can get what we need from the Middle East uh, in a different way through diplomacy uh, that's less dangerous, less volatile, less costly, and lets us look ahead to other American problems. And so Trump, I think in some ways, had a similar feeling like, oh man, we got to get to Russia and China. But he didn't really consider the fact that the two things that he most wanted to do with the Middle East were directly in contradiction with each other. Number one, uh, maybe get out. And you see that sometimes. He wants to do less in a lot of places. Now, I think we should do more with our civilian tools, which are cheap, dirt cheap, and less with our military. But he thinks we should basically, he has the, the opposite way. Look tough with the military and get out with our civilian side. But like, he wants to do less. Get out from Syria. I think he wouldn't be upset if we got thrown out of Iraq. Now, I think that's a terrible mistake. But he, I think, thinks that. Um, and on the other hand, in addition to wanting to do less, he also wants to uh, he wants to be tough. And when you're trying to both get out and be tough at the same time, the other side looks at that and thinks, oh, "Okay, you don't really have the appetite for this. You know, you don't really have the stomach for this. Sure, you can stand us down in a missile strike, but you're not going to be paying attention a week from now, and we're going to go take over all the you know facilities in Iraq. We've already taken over Syria." We got our guys in Lebanon. We got our guys in Yemen. We got our guys in Gaza. So you can, we can have this big nuclear, you know, this big standoff over uh, the last week that we've had. But you're leaving and we're staying. Um, and, and so 
you know, I think that's the problem is that Trump basically created this hornet's nest of tension. And I think it was a bad relationship, but he spiked the tension level to 11 by walking out of the Iran deal, reimposing sanctions, treating them like an enemy, threatening them, etc. They were bad actors before, but he sort of spiked the tension. And where are we now? Well, uh, Iran is back to enriching uranium. They are no longer abiding by the restrictions of the Iran deal. Um, they've been launching rockets, killing Americans, uh, you know, uh, basically at a hair trigger all around the world. We might be thrown out of the country of Iraq. Uh, and America has 20,000 more soldiers that they've had to send to the Middle East just to protect this new, worse arrangement that Donald Trump put in place. So I get that Trump, like, looked tough and had his crisis and got kind of, you know, stared down the other guys. And I get what's in it for him as a leader. I don't get what's in it for us because the Middle East looks worse. Iran looks more powerful. Things are more dangerous. Then we still have the threat of a nuclear crisis down the road with Iran because he took that solved problem for now that was solved for a decade or more and unsolved it. Uh, so, so that's kind of where we are. That's what we inherited, and that's where we are. On the ISIS stuff, I think – Just real quick yeah. before you go to ISIS. So, so yeah. I, I just want to like play – the other side of this for a Please, second yeah. and say it to you the way that it gets said to us, you know, the Iran deal, right? Uh, they were lying. We can't trust them anyway. That was all bullshit. Yeah. What do you, what do you say when people say that? Yeah, I've heard, I, we, we hear that one up, up here too. Uh, yeah. You know, look, I mean, there's a saying called, you know, Ronald Reagan, when he signed nuclear deals with the Soviet Union, he said, trust, but verify. We said distrust, but verify. We don't trust those guys any further than we can throw them. What we trusted was that we would create a deal where there were major inspections across the country, like unprecedented in the history of nuclear agreements, and where if they didn't honor it, we had what they call snapback provisions, meaning we could put all the sanctions in place with the whole world behind us if they didn't follow it. You know, we call that distrust, but verify. And so, so yeah, you know, Iran has cheated. They've cheated in the past. Um, Donald Trump's uh, uh, bro in Pyongyang, uh, Kim Jong-un, has cheated too. And Donald Trump seems to have a kind of naive trust in him. Uh, this is a big problem. People cheat on different agreements in, in the nuclear world, and it's a huge problem. But the fact is that, and I don't want to get into a kind of alphabet soup of different agencies, but the referees in this whole thing between America and Iran is a place called the International Atomic Energy Agency. Right, the um, IAEA, yeah. The IAEA, yeah, exactly. And I don't want, I'm mindful that like eyes yeah. are glazing over. Yeah, acronyms are bad, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Biden, by the way, would, you know, cross out any acronym in any briefing we gave. Is that right? Yeah, That's and say no plan. acronyms. Spell it out for me. And if your aunt doesn't know what it is, you should probably rewrite it. He's right and about I, that. I took he's some of at, that with me. He's good at speaking, you know, down home. Yeah, right. So look, the referees, the international organization, the, I, the International Atomic Energy Agency that goes around and looks at this stuff, inspects Iran sites. It's a bunch of nuclear you know, physicists and inspectors and strategic experts. Uh, they said Iran was following the deal. They kept saying it over and over again, and it kept so, making by the, the Trump way, administration did, matter and matter. So did Trump's own generals. So did yeah. Mattis. Right. The intelligence community, the, the generals. The problem here, I mean, look, I'm not going to be Iran's lawyer. Like, yeah. If they cheat, they deserve to be walloped over it, and they, they deserve to have the kind of painful sanctions that they had under Obama or under Trump. Like that's that's what you deserve. If you don't follow the nuclear deal, then the snapback provisions would allow you to be sanctioned again. That that mechanism was in place to do that under the Iran deal. 
if they cheated. The thing is, we cheated. Right. And and then so the other one that comes up and that he just said in his speech yesterday again is that we gave them 150 billion dollars to then oh, yeah. turn Talk around. Talk about and, bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, t- I mean, here I'm going to play real quick while while we have it. I'm just going to play Kerry's reaction to that. It is an outright lie, an outright lie by the president of the United States that they were given $150 billion. They were not. And the money that they did receive was their money because they sued the United States of America and won in court and were being paid interest. So American citizens were paying interest every single day that was accruing more and more billions of dollars that were going to go to Iran. We cut that short. We negotiated a deal that greatly reduced the amount of money that they were, in fact, supposed to receive under court order, and they would have received it eventually. And we... Tra- so, you yeah. get what he's saying there. And, oh, yeah. and, you know, like, I'm just going to be the person who doesn't believe that. And I, I'm just going to say, like, I, I do believe him, but someone would say, why would we give it to them at all? Why don't we just tell them to go fuck themselves? Yeah, no, that's that's the right question. Like, And, and by the way, I, John Kerry was my first boss ever in Washington. Right. And it's nice to see that he can still summon the outrage when Donald Trump tells a lie, <laughs> which happens every day ending in why. Right. Uh, you know, like, I mean, the thing is that you don't make deals, uh, you don't make these kinds of deals with your friends. You make them with your enemies. Um, the a couple of things when it comes to this money that they got, which was in fact their money that was frozen, uh, they did get a bunch of money. That's true that we had held back from them and kind of crushed their economy through these sanctions. Um, but the idea that it was 150 billion is wrong. A lot of it was actually Chinese debt that they immediately had to pay back to China. Uh, a ton of it was spent domestically on the uh, Iranian people who have suffered through this whole thing. Um, and the fact is, when you look at Iranian misbehavior across the region, uh, before the deal, during the deal, and after the deal, they've kept spending money on these bad guy proxy groups that they have, the Hezbollah and the Syrians and the Yemeni Houthis uh, and Hamas, who are really bad freaking guys. They are bad guys. Um, and Iran has kept spending money on them at a steady clip when they were under sanctions, when they had the Iran deal, and now that they're under sanctions again. So this argument that like this was brought to you by Obama and the money that they got in the Iran deal is just BS. It's just not factually correct. There's they have we got a Iran problem in the Middle East, but it's not because of some money. Like the the money is there for them to do this. This is this is a very cheap thing. I mean, I don't want to go down another rabbit hole, but yeah. it's called asymmetrical, right? We have big battleships and F-35 fighters that can, you know, see in the dark and are invisible to air defenses. And they have like networks of guys who can go out and make bad things happen in places and doesn't cost that much money if you have the right setup on the ground. If, you know, if you're the big bad outside power, it's very expensive. If you're the local nimble inside power, it's pretty cheap. So that's the thing about the money. But then the bigger picture here, and this is what gets to Soleimani, who richly deserved to be killed by somebody because he was a very bad man with a lot of, a very bad man who just had a lot of of suffering that he had caused for other people. The thing is, at the end of the day, America doesn't want to spend the next 30 years uh, in kind of ticky-tack 
near war fights with Iran that require us to keep 30,000 extra people in the Middle East. There's a fundamental problem and choice here. We have to deter Iran from doing bad stuff. We have to do that in a way that's realistic. But when it comes to Iran's nuclear program, there are three options at the end of the day when you play it out. And that's true now. That was true under Obama. It'll be true under you know President Dwayne The Rock Johnson in a few years or whatever <laughs> happens next. Uh, it's, it's Zach true. Miller has been calling for that for the last three months. <laughs> yeah, Zach, get out there. Make it happen. <laughs> Um, so that is just, it's just, it's, it's true. There's no way around this. Three options. Number one, Iran gets a nuclear bomb or, or sits pretty damn close so that they feel that they can deter people with a nuclear capability. Uh, that's a terrible outcome. Imagine the last week, except Iran has a nuclear weapon, or even just imagine the last week and they're a month away from a nuclear weapon like they were under before the Iran deal that Trump loves to trash. Replay this crisis. It's a nightmare. It could easily have led to war. They could have decided, oh, great, this is our excuse to go have a nuclear breakout. And then we would have had to probably bomb them and go to war. Um, so that's option one, bomb uh, Iranian bomb. Option two, bomb Iran. And in that scenario, we're basically bombing Iran every two years. They're developing their nuclear program back up as faster and faster as they possibly can. And we have to keep bombing them. There are Israeli strategists who call this mowing the lawn. I think it's terrible. America doesn't want to be at war. Like, it's not in our constitution. It's not in our nature to spend... The next, it's not in our interest or any of those things to spend the next 30 years bombing this country repeatedly to keep them from getting a weapon. So you got Iranian bomb, bomb Iran, or the third option, diplomacy. And I call me crazy, but I'm in camp number three. I want to see what's behind that door. And 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 that's what Obama looked at and saw. Not because he loved these guys, not because he was their lawyer, not because he wanted to give them back their money in any real way, because he said, you know what? When push comes to shove, this isn't worth it. We could kill their bad guys. They'll generate more bad guys. We could fight them. We can have this kind of tense relationship. I can stand up there and act tough like he did with bin Laden and go in and get him in Pakistan. You know, you could have that kind of approach to Iran, but like, why? We don't need to do it. Like, it's right. not worth it for the American people. No, that's uh, a great point. I, I want to show a tweet that you had. Um, this is what you said yesterday or Actually, maybe today you said those celebrating Trump on Iran remind me of the old Chris Rock joke about folks who want to pat on the back for not doing what they aren't supposed to do. You're not supposed to almost start a pointless war. Exactly. Yeah. Like this dude lit the fire, put out the fire, and then wants a credit for the fire not burning down the house. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, people, I, I hear Democrats being like, oh, this is going to be good for him. Like we can't let that seep in. You know, this is, this is not a win for this guy. It is a guy who got on the highway driving the wrong way and <laughs> ba barely made it to the next exit. He is not some amazing driver, you know? No, that's, ex I couldn't put it any better than that myself, man. And I think the problem is people like a, stro a show of strength. They like to see the commander in chief right. looking tough and acting a little chippy and not getting into war. And so politically he got the show episode that he wanted of the Trump show. Uh, where where he pushes it right to the limit, looks tough, and America doesn't have to go to war. Right. That doesn't mean – I mean, I keep coming back to this basic thing. I know what's in it for him. What's in it for us? It's a great question. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to keep you forever, but I just want to ask you about a couple of the things in the aftermath now. You know, the thing that people keep harping on and Republicans are starting to ask and which should have been asked – by everybody right away, and it seems pretty clear that they had no answer, is this 
idea of an imminent attack, uh, their legal justification for doing what they did with Soleimani is that he was planning a specific imminent attack that was going to kill Americans. In a State Department briefing with reporters, they were asked about this. They gave no answer, and they basically said, Jesus, we really have to explain this stuff to you guys. Then in a briefing with the senators yesterday, they, again, seemingly didn't have any answers whatsoever. And Senator Mike Lee, a Republican, came out saying this. My point is, they were asked a number of hypotheticals about situations in which they might have to appropriately come and ask for authorization for Congress. Not once did they say, yes, we need to do it in that circumstance. Uh, at one point, one of the briefers said something like, uh, don't worry, we'll consult you. Well, with history as our guide, uh, consultation isn't necessarily the same thing as authorization for the use of military force. A declaration of war or an AUMF is what the Constitution requires, and drive-by notification or after-the-fact uh, lame yeah. briefings like the one we just received aren't adequate. All right, so there's that. that's one, and then just real quick, this was another one. Now, I find this insulting and demeaning, not, not personally, but to the office that each of the 100 senators in this building happens to hold. I find it insulting and I find it demeaning to the Constitution of the United States to which we've all sworn an oath. It is, after all, the prerogative of the legislative branch to declare war. Article 1, Section 8 makes that very clear. So he's coming out saying that the briefing was horrible, that they gave no information about the imminent attack, and reminding us that it's actually Congress who gets to declare war. If they didn't need to say that there was an imminent attack for legal reasons, they wouldn't have said it. They would have just said he's a bad guy. Obviously, they know they needed a justification. Mm -hmm. They gave it, and they have nothing to back it up. So are they on i mean not that our you know our our system actually can hold them to account as we've seen but you know are they on any kind of shaky legal ground here yeah it's a really interesting question i mean they offered this legal this legal justification that this was an imminent strike i think that what it really was was a kind of retaliatory deterrence strike against a guy who had just killed an american in iraq his Qasem Soleimani, like a week earlier, had probably instructed these proxies to go out and kill Americans. And I think he probably was plotting in some fashion to do more strikes against Americans because Iran had basically telegraphed that that was true. Now, they basically made this assertion that it was imminent. And there sure doesn't seem to be a lot of intelligence to back that up. Now, it may be that they have intel that they're not sharing that suggests that. Uh, and, and you get in that position when you're in administration briefing and you have all kinds of compartmented shit that you can't actually share with even you don't want to share with Congress because you're afraid Congress will leak, which Congress often does. But, but However, look at it this way, Dan. Look at yeah. it this way. With this administration, the way they brag about all the things that they do and all the yeah. people they save, if they had specifics on like Americans that they saved or targets that they saved, they would be talking about it. They'd be running Facebook ads about it. They this are running not, Facebook ads about Trump and Soleimani already. Yeah, right. But they're accusing not us of it, politicizing the strike. Of course, you know, of course. That's but, just the nature of the beast here. But you know, look, I think that it's possible. It's possible that 
they had what they needed legally to do this. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but the fact that they asserted that there was an imminent threat that may or may not be credible and real or backed up by the evidence is pretty troubling. But the step back for a second, and the bigger problem is Congress is to solve. Okay, Mike Lee, I, you're, you're making great points, uh, and you're making points that needed to be made during administrations, Democratic and Republican, and you get respect for making it when the president is of your same party. A lot of respect for doing that. That's gutsy. That's brassy. But now go get your colleagues to go and vote on new authorizations of, of force or deauthorizations that say what you can't do. Uh, because the fact is we're operating with this very rickety legal framework right now, some of which was passed in the smoke after 9-11. We've learned a lot as a country since then. And that 9-11 authorization of military force, which goes by the sort of funny uh, acronym AUMF, which you don't usually say out loud. In Lima, <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, that, that AUMF uh, basically has been used to justify strikes against terrorists all over the world. I, you know, good for you, Mike Lee. Now start legislating. Get your colleagues together and, and, and keep that work going. And there, ha there has been work. But a lot of the problem has been Congress people not wanting to take tough votes. I mean, right. I remember this, uh, you know, a very different moment, very different crisis, very different president during the Syria red line episode in 2013, when basically Obama was went to Congress after Syria used chemical weapons and said, if I'm going to strike Syria, you all better vote with me. And a lot of Congress people who had been advocating for American strikes on Syria, folks like Marco Rubio, who had been really out there chest thumping and, you know, Ted Cruz, they could have voted to give Obama that authorization, but when he put it back to them and said, okay, guys, now vote, put a vote in the, in the historic record in favor of this thing that you think I should do, they voted against the strikes. Didn't, didn't they attack him for that? Wasn't he attacked for- He was attacked for asking, asking Congress, Congress for a vote. And, and he was and, attacked- And the way history seems to remember it is that he just wouldn't attack. Right. But what actually happened was he asked Congress for authority and they didn't give it to him. Yeah. And that was looked at as weakness. So actually trying to- obey the constitution was treated as weakness in hindsight. And I think people don't even remember that that's what happened. Right. Look, there are mistakes to go around on this thing for sure. And, and, and I think there are certainly a lot of people in the Obama administration who have a lot of regrets about that episode. But what is true is that Congress basically, it, sometimes they could be what we call down the block tough, you know, like you want this fight until the fight's actually happening. You want to take this on and then you don't want to take it on if you actually have to you right. know, step up and do it. This is so, a good point from, yeah. from uh, Meryl Fraser, who I appreciate all the comments you're making right now, Meryl. Thanks for watching along with us. <laughs> I, I like what he said here. He said, I guarantee if our taxes went up when the conflicts happened to make yeah. these actions revenue neutral, there'd suddenly be a lot more people interested in not playing world police. That's yeah. a really good point because we never get asked how are we going to pay for these things. It's only health care and food for poor people that oh, we get asked right. about how we're going to pay for. That's right. And the defense budget is staggeringly big. I mean, it's very funny. Trump gets up there and goes, it's... $2.5 trillion as though it was zero before he came in. If he had left it alone, it would have been $2.3 trillion. And he right. added $0.2 trillion to it, right. which by the way is a tremendous amount of money and could buy college for everybody and all kinds of things that we should do at home instead and roads wow. and bridges and, and for what. But, you know, the, there, there's, you know, Merrill's exactly right. Like we got to think about this as holistically uh, not just like, does the president look good this week, but like, uh, how are we thinking about this relative to the other things America has to accomplish in the world? 
And how are we thinking about those investments relative to the other kinds of things we want to do? So Merrill, hats off to you. You're right, 100%. I think that's a great note to, to bring to wind this down on. I appreciate you having given all this time. Uh, I want to ask one last thing that's Tennessee focused yeah. um, and get your perspective on it because so we saw, and I'm going to play this right now, we saw in the wake of uh, the killing of Soleimani, we saw these millions of mourners in Iran walking in the streets. And, you know, clearly this guy was a guy who was popular in Iran. And I've actually seen articles that talk about how he was one of the two shining stars in their country. So, of course, our own Marsha Blackburn, seeing that, had this to say about it. She said, this is what happens when you're given the choice of attending or being killed. Mm -hmm. So there is this line of thought in Republican circles, and I've heard it not just from her. I also heard our, our ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, say mm -hmm. it on NPR yesterday that those people were actually only out there because they were told, get out there, we're going to kill you. Uh, I have seen no evidence of this. I asked a Nashville Iranian American friend of mine about this, and he mm -hmm. said, she's an idiot. No truth, no truth to it whatsoever. Republicans are beating the drumbeat of war, lying, exaggerating, and demonizing to support Trump's impulsive and provocative act. I think it's a very dehumanizing thing for them to say about mm -hmm. the Iranian people as though they have no agency and will only mourn if they're forced to, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, I think the idea that all those people are out there because they're under threat of being killed is just simply wrong. Like the Iranian people is a big, woolly, complicated abstraction that covers 80 million people. You know, you put two of them around a dinner table, you get three different opinions. Like, you know, it, it's, it's easy to sort of talk for them and be like, they all hated Soleimani or they all loved Soleimani or whatever. The fact is, it's complicated, like everything in the Middle East. There's an old joke that you go to the Middle East for a week, you know, you write a book, you go for a month, you write an article, you go for a year, you write nothing. Like, it's complicated. And, and the Iranian people, some of them loved Soleimani and are sincerely mourning him. Some of them are afraid of their own government and going out to be seen, to be loyal to their regime. Uh, and, and, and some of them are staying home because they thought he was a, a guy who took their country on foreign adventures that they couldn't afford at a time when their own society was crumbling from a lack of internal investment. Uh, and they didn't like him going out and spending their money, taking selfies in Iraq and Syria and doing bad things overseas. So like, there's not, a, it's not a monolith. It's like all different kinds of people, some of whom really like and respect America and come here and live and work before they were banned by this administration. So like, I think Marshall Blackburn is totally wrong, but I think she's like 90% wrong, not 100% wrong. Well, I, Marshall Blackburn is totally wrong is my favorite set, sentence in the English language. <laughs> so I appreciate you saying it. That's Dan, amazing. it's so good to see you, buddy. You too, uh, you too. Thank you for everything that you've been doing. My mother just jumped on to say, hi, Dan, good to see you on here. Great interview. If my mom's happy, you know it must have been a great interview because well, she's completely unbiased. Keep fighting the good fight. So happy that you're doing this. And, and uh, thanks to all the folks out there listening. I really appreciate you. Appreciate it, buddy. Stay in touch.